Welcome to the Pokes Podcast, the official podcast of OSU's College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Elizabeth Gosney. And I'm Luke Hess. And we're here today with Dr. Ashley Burkett, a professor in the Boone Pickens School of Geology. Among her many accomplishments, Dr. Burkett recently dove with the Alvin, a famous human-occupied deep ocean submersible vehicle maintained by the U.S. Navy. Her expedition aided her research in micropaleontology. Dr. Burkett, can you tell us about yourself, where you're from, what's your field of expertise, what do you do at OSU? Yeah, sure. So I am an assistant professor of geology in the Boone Pickens School of Geology, and I started here in 2018. I'm from Ohio originally, and I've kind of bopped around the Midwest a bit, so I, I did my PhD and master's in Indiana State University. And then I had a job out in Pennsylvania, and then I ended up here in Oklahoma on my tenure track position. So that's been great. I like it. And my expertise is in micropaleontology. So I look at old dead things. Um, Sometimes I look at live things to try to figure out how the old dead things behaved in the past so we can watch their behavior in the future. But I need a microscope to look at my fossils. Um, And most of my stuff comes from the ocean. So I go out on ships to go get the samples. Yeah, because the, the, how do you say the fossils? Yeah. How, how do you pronounce that? Foraminifera. That's Foraminifera, yeah. yeah. But we call them forams for short, and some people just call them bugs. But they're not actual insects, so I don't like that term so much. But um, people will say, like, oh, yeah, you're fossil bugs. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's whatever. <laughs> cool. um, but, yeah, we just call them forams. For sure. We were totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, we, we tried to pronounce it. It was nothing like that. Forminifera is sometimes how people say it. Yeah. 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 Four AMs? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I'm from Ohio, so obviously all the A's are accentuated a little bit more. Than, so <laughs> when I say four AMs, most people are four AMs, like a little bit more subtle. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what are they for someone who doesn't know? They, they're yeah. little, but how little are they? Right. So they're uh, usually about the size of a grain of sand uh, or smaller. So we think about them on the micron level. So a micron is like a fraction of a, of a millimeter. So it's the little... When you're on looking at a ruler and you're looking at the tiny little dashes on the that are smaller than centimeters, you're looking at millimeters, and we're looking at the dashes that would be between those dashes. Wow. Uh, yeah, so that's why you need a microscope to look at them. Some of the bigger specimens we have are up to like seven millimeters, but those are considered like really big. Oh, okay. uh, most of them are going to be uh, between sixty to two hundred ish microns. Um, So they're really small, like grains of sand. You could put one in the palm of your hand and you can see that it's a thing, uh, but you can't necessarily (laughs) see the features on it that you need to to identify what it is. Uh, So they're real small, but they live in marine environments. They are one single cell, but they make a shell. And that's typically what we can see is the shell. The, The cell is like an amoeba. It's an amoeboid protist. Um, and it has some unique characteristics, one of which is that it can take its cell wall and it can extend it out into like web-like structures. Yeah, cool. it's called pseudopodia. And so it extends out the pseudopodia and that's how it like gets food. So it's a single-celled organism, so it's not an animal, but I like to refer to it as a quote animal <laughs> because in the micro world, there are some that photosynthesize and those are kind of like plants, right? But mm-hmm. they're not actual plants because they're a single cell. And then there are others that eat things, and those are kind of the, quote, animals that will behave more like animals. So when I teach it in paleontology, I like to divide it by 
what the organism's shell is made out of and how they behave. Do they behave kind of like an animal that's going to consume something or a plant that's going to photosynthesize? And so that's how we kind of divide up the four basic microorganisms that live in the oceans um, in terms of what their shell is made of and how they behave. And so forams are the ones that will go and catch food or, or pull things out of the water column with their pseudopodia and then pull it back. And it's really cool. It's like they can, it's like their cell that can spread out into a million arms if they want. But then what's cool about their arms is they can smash them all back together and make them like one big arm that they extend somewhere. So it's like having the ability to branch them out, but then pull them back together. Um, and that's a special characteristic that's unique only to the, that group called the, of the forams. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like net fishing yeah. with their shell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's two different varieties. Some of them live in the water column. We call those planktonics or planktics. And then there's the benthics, which are what I specialize in. And those live on the seafloor or in the sediments. And they, the benthics evolved first, and then there was a branch that went up into the water column, was like, hey, there's food up here too, I'm going to figure out how to float. Um, and so they use their shell mostly for buoyancy so that they can exist in a certain part of the water column. We can use those in the fossil record to track like where different salinities in the ocean are, or different temperatures, or different levels of sunlight penetration into the water, so we can figure out where the photic zone was because wow. some of them have symbionts that need to photosynthesize. So they get like hitchhikers that are like, hey, I'll uh, give you some of my byproducts and, and food if you just give me a spot to live in. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, that's cool. We can, we can make that arrangement. And so then they try to stay in the sunlight. So when things change in the oceans, you'll get the assemblages, we call them, like who's there, mm -hmm. changing in your fossil record. And, and that's how we can reconstruct what's going on in the, the water column. With the wow. planktonics. With the benthics, we do a bunch of different things, like water depth and salinity and temperature and uh, f mostly food, how much food is coming down into the, the deep sea environments. Wow. That was a lot. I'm sorry. No, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. most of it went over my head, but I mean, that's fascinating. That, so you have studied all you know, those four categories that you're talking about. I and focus then, mostly on just the forams. Okay. Yeah, I, I teach them. So when, in paleontology, when I teach them, that's how we kind of categorize them. Oh, I see. Um, so that students can wrap their heads around how they behave and where they would be then. Mm -hmm. um, because photosynthesizers aren't going to be in the deep sea. Right? Yeah. There's no sunlight there. So yeah. if they know, like, oh, this tiny calcareous, foram, or calcareous microfossil that photosynthesizes, oh, that's going to be in the water column. That's a coccolith or a planktonic oh. foram with a symbiont or something. So Okay, okay. Yeah. So That's yeah, crazy. there's different kinds of microfossils. And so a micropaleontologist in general could study all of those microfossils, but we typically specialize in one kind of grouping. Okay. Because of things like forams, there's over there's like five thousand living species. Wow. So yeah. So in order to like be good at your job. <laughs> you have to like specialize into it because you're going to take a long time to learn how to identify all 5,000 of those if you ever get to that point of doing it. Yeah. Uh, all 5,000. Most people will specialize not only in just a type of microfossil, but also like a region or a time period. Oh. Um, because if there's 5,000 living, there's like probably millions of, of extinct species. Nobody's ever done the exact numbers, but there was a 
scientist who made an estimate and it was in the it was about a million or so and oh my gosh yeah it was people were like that can't be right and he's like there's 5,000 living species yeah um just around 5,000 if you round up I guess but dang yeah it's <laughs> so if you're gonna do a good job at your identifications and and understanding who's where and in what quantities you usually need to specialize so yeah. there's very few micropaleontologists who do more than one discipline mm-hmm. um in terms of like those different categories. So with the Alvin, that has aided your your research into the 4AMs, correct? Yeah. How did that come about? How did that collaboration start? Oh yeah. When I went to grad school, I made a good choice as to who my advisor was. <laughs> he um, had recently gotten a very large NSF grant with a couple other PIs, and which is principal investigator. Those are the leaders of the groups. So he and two other PIs put together this big collaborative project, and they got it funded. And so they got to go to all of these uh, areas in the ocean in the Pacific called methane seeps. And these are areas in the seafloor where there's methane that's just like bubbling out, or it's trapped in ice, which is called a gas hydrate. And so when I started in his lab, he already had these cruises lined up where we were able to go out there and explore these methane seep environments with the Alvin and the uh, remotely operated vehicle, the Jason. And so that's where it started. And so my graduate training started using these like incredible state-of-the-art, you know, amazing tools that can literally take you either with a video camera or in person down to the deep sea. Yeah. That's crazy. The reason we needed it for methane seeps is that they are really dynamic systems and they can change through time. Okay. Even on like days to weeks to months, things like how the tidal cycles can change where things are seeping out and where they aren't. And so you really need like human perception down there Mm -hmm. to be able to find it. If you just throw like a sampling device off the back of the ship and try to sample the seafloor, even with a camera on your sampling device, you might not understand fully what you're seeing because you can't look around and put it into context. So that's one of the reasons why... We make the argument that you really need to take people down to the deep sea to observe and look out the window and see the things that, um, you know, you can't just see on a video camera. And on a video system, you're limited to the quality of the camera and the light penetration through the water and, uh, you know, the area of focus. There will always be people who want to look at what's going on with the sampling. But then in the Alvin, for instance, there's windows out the front and the sides of the sub. Mm -hmm. And when you're sampling on, let's say, the right side of the sub, the left side observer is just sitting there because they can't see anything. And they could turn on their screen and they could watch what's going on on the right side. But the windows are only, I don't know, how big would you say this is? (laughs) A few six inches, maybe? Yeah, Yeah, softball size. size. And so, you know, one face fits in the window. Uh And so usually it's the pilot who's doing the sampling in Alvin that sticks his face in the window (laughs) that's got the best view. And so the science observers are typically just sitting there kind of looking out the window because this is what we study and we're fascinated by it. But it's those observations that sometimes are like, the most compelling because you're just sitting there watching and you're or you're just like trying to get a big understanding of the landscape and so what'll happen a lot of times is you come back from your alvin dive and people want to know all about the samples and and the stuff that you've brought back and they're asking about that but then everybody will stop once the samples are like stabilized they will stop and they will be like what was it like down there because they can go back and they can watch your video footage and stuff but the video footage is not going to tell you about like what you saw just off screen 
when you were looking out the window because we are trained to like understand the geology and the biology and the chemistry even the complex nature of the deep sea and our brains are synthesizing all of that together right to kind of put it all in context and it's that context that is like deeply needed for the alvin stuff what is the alvin and what has it been used for and also how deep were you going yeah, that's, those are good questions. So the Alvin is a manned submersible that can carry three people in it. One of them has to operate the Alvin. We call that the pilot. So they're highly trained people, usually with a naval background, that will fly the sub. They call it flying the sub because you're essentially flying as you're going through the water <laughs> column and then you have to you know maneuver it down on the bottom. It usually has like an eight-hour workday. Uh, I think they're working to increase that, but so... You get into the sub, which is a six-foot diameter titanium sphere. So it's six hmm. feet on the inside, I believe. And it's a, it's a couple inches thick titanium sphere that you go down a ladder, and then they take the ladder out, and huh. then the pilot will close the latch and, and turn this big thing, just like you imagine on like a movie when you watch someone close a submarine door. Yeah. It's just like that, but it's on the top. And you turn this big circle thing, and then they use this device to measure how much space is between the hatch and the top of the sphere, just to make sure, because you're going deep, right? And you're going to have all of the pressure of the ocean pushing in on you. So if you imagine, like, taking a whole five-gallon bucket of water and putting that on top of your head, that's the weight of just five gallons of water. And when you're going miles deep, it would be the equivalent of stacking five-gallon buckets as deep as you're going in the ocean. So you have to deal with all that immense pressure. And that's what the titanium sphere is for. My claustrophobia yeah. is setting in on that description right? alone. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so they latch it shut and then uh, you're essentially in there for eight hours. And how deep you're going is dependent on you know where you're going and, and how you're doing it. The whole thing has an, its own atmosphere in there. So you've got oxygen tanks and huh. they will change the oxygen. And then there are CO2 scrubbers that are meant to like obviously make sure that you don't gas yourself out with your own <laughs> exhaled uh, CO2. And they'll mess with the oxygen, sometimes decrease it, sometimes increase it based mm-hmm. on, you know, how we're feeling and stuff. Um, and because it's your own created atmosphere inside of the sphere, some people experience headaches and oh. things when they get out because their CO2 is a little bit higher. They have enough, like, life support stuff. You could spend five days in there, wow. but you wouldn't want to. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're only bringing there's, – there's MREs and things in there, so there's – food, water, and oxygen, and CO2 scrubbing capabilities enough for like five days while you wait to be rescued if you get stuck. Holy cow. Uh, yeah, but there's no bathroom, so that would be a terrible <laughs> I was going to ask about yeah. that. It's like, do you just not drink anything <laughs> yeah, the yeah. day before? No, we bring down uh, water and coffee, um, and they pack you a lunch. So the cooks on the ship will pack you a lunch, and huh. it's usually a sandwich and some fruit and a candy bar. And, you know, it's great. And we bring down a thermos of coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bathroom facilities are essentially just jars that are under <laughs> or tubs that are under the the main floorboard. Really? So you can wow. open the floorboard and there's there's a, a uh, it's like a hospital grade urinal sort of gotcha. situation with like a, an opening. Um, and and obviously for people who don't need an adapter, they don't need it. Uh, but there are adapters for those of us who do need it. Hmm. And you just use that little tub thing and then we tape it off and make sure it's not going to leak. <laughs> and if you, <laughs> you can request an extra tub if you feel like you need multiples. Uh, 
it's those little things you don't know about. Yeah, right. Yeah, but how did you go to bathroom? Right, right. Yep. And so you just in the middle of the the sphere, you can stand up, and like very tall people, even people six feet something, can stand up completely when they're in that hatch area in the middle. Mm-hmm. If you tried to do that on the sides, you wouldn't be able to. But you just kind of say, hey, guys, I got to use the bathroom. And the other two look out the window and, uh, <laughs> you know, hum to themselves <laughs> while the other person's using the facilities. But yeah. it's a, you know, highly professional environment. And after you dive with someone, you are good friends forever. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but the Alvin was a sub it's operated by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, but it's technically maintained by the U.S. Navy. And it has gone through several different iterations and rebuilds. So if you just Google the submersible Alvin, there's some really nice schematics and videos of how it's changed through time. Most recently during quarantine, during COVID, it got put into dry dock and they took the entire thing apart. So, oh. uh, yeah, so down to the sphere and then completely gutted parts of the sphere. Obviously, certain parts that they use to drive things. If you don't need to mess with it, you generally don't. Yeah. But they rebuilt it so that it could dive even deeper. So prior to that dry dock, it could dive down 4,000 meters. Um, but now it's certified to go 6,500 meters. Wow. Um, so like 90% of the ocean floor is like within reach of the Alvin now. Yeah. Wow. So the deepest part of the ocean is 11,000 meters okay. in the Mariana Trench. Um, and the average depth of the ocean is 4,000. But there are lots of parts of the ocean that are deeper. And so right at the beginning of the school year in July and August, I went on an expedition to help certify Alvin oh. for its new deepest dives. And so I was... One of the first people, one of I was the first group of scientists to use the Alvin at 6,000 meters. Wow. So in answer to your question, the first time I dove in Alvin, I went 800 meters, which, you know, is not even 1,000 meters. And the second time I dove, I went 5,900 meters, so wow. just shy of like four <laughs> miles Holy deep. Cow. Yeah. And it took us two and a half hours to get down. We spent about uh, three hours, just under three hours to get on the bottom sampling and then another about two hours to get back up to the surface. So, wow, yeah. How does it feel to be down there? Is it is there the sense of claustrophobia? Is there a fear that you have to kind of get used to? What is that like? It, yeah, it, it's different for everybody. So generally, if you have a fear of flying, they they recommend you think twice before you try <laughs> to do something like that. I have, like, a claustrophobia of my clothes, but not Ooh. of, like, spaces. Yeah. Crazy. Like, I can, I've can i gone spelunking before and fit through some really, really tight spots and not had a problem. But if I, like, put on a shirt that's just too tight <laughs> and I can't get it off myself, then I start to panic. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but in the sub, like, it's no problem at all for me because the prospect of, like, what I'm going to see outweighs any ounce of fear that I have in there. And I'm just like so excited to get to where I'm going that the application of the journey is not something that like really worries me. Plus, since it's Navy certified, they put they pack it full of more people than should be in there. They put it, you know, they, they push it to its limits with uh, Navy personnel. And mm. so it's and the, the safety protocols they go through, like I feel safer in the sub than I do like in any device I've ever traveled in. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. That's really that's really cool. Luke was uh, telling me earlier that he feels like the 4AMs, that being a one-celled organism and they, the shell is as tiny as a grain of sand, they almost sound 
it's unbelievable that they're that small. And he yeah. compared it to Harry Potter yeah. and Luna Lovegood and the the Nargles, you know, oh, yeah, and the like things, things that people that are like, see. she's crazy. Yeah. And yeah. That was like, it does sound unbelievable. And so right. how did you get interested in How did you get into that? And, and yeah, it, yeah, it is. It's very much like that where the way I talk about things and describe things, people are like, no way, that can't. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Like, <laughs> I've totally seen it. I swear, it's like this. And they're like, okay, I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> um, I think looking through a microscope is almost the equivalent of, like, going to space. Like, it's just a different world. Like, it's everything's completely different, and there's no possible way that you could put yourself where they are and think the way their thinking, which is part of what I love it, right? Yeah. Trying to figure out, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why on earth is that the best possible thing for you? Because you find them on, on weird places, on doing interesting things, but you see these patterns over and over, and you're like, there's a reason. There's mm-hmm. a reason. But there's no way for me to put my, myself into a single-celled organism's, like, shoes and be like... Okay, uh, this is the best case scenario because why? Because it, it's so, so small that I can't observe it. So I have to make a lot of guesses and ideas about what I'm seeing and what I think I see. And then you get a bunch of people who think differently together. Like with my grad students, they all have different experiences and different perceptions. And we all think about things a little bit differently. Even if we're all interested in something the same way or we've been trained on something the same way. Yes, we're all looking at these things that we can't even fathom, usually, and most people have not even thought of before. And then we sit there and argument, argue about the semantics and the, the little things that there's no way we'll ever be able to understand it. But it's fun to think about. So after hearing about how small they are and how unbelievable they sound, how do you collect these? And tell us more about your C-cube yeah. um, <laughs> that you use to do this. Sure. Yeah, so we go into marine environments, and we usually take what's called a core, which is some sort of cylindrical device that's hollow on the inside that we push in with a variety of different methods. It could be hydraulically just pushing it in, or it could be like rotary drilling, sort of, like they do in the oil and gas industry to get a solid rock core. So it depends on what you want. If you want living stuff, we can use things like the Alvin to go down and get just surface sediment. And usually that surface sediment is really unconsolidated. It's just like beach at the sand when you pick it up and it'll go through your fingers. Mm -hmm. And so you use just a push core to get those. But these sea cubes that I developed, which I did during grad school, so getting into my advisor's lab and having the opportunity to deploy things in the ocean and know that I was going to have the next year to recover them or the next two years to recover them allowed me to develop these tools that I got to essentially test out free of charge to myself um, (laughs) in grad school. And so I developed these things with my advisor. We were looking at a completely different experiment. So we were designing these uh, cubes. So they're like four centimeter or, yeah, 10 centimeters or four inches by four inches by four inches in a cube shape. And it's a steel frame, so it's really stable. And then we were attaching things on the inside, and then we didn't want things to mess with the stuff on the inside of the cube, so we covered it in this gardening mesh just for protection. Mm-hmm. And it turns out the forams were colonizing that plastic on the gardening mesh on the outside. Huh. So, yeah, so we got this, like, bonus experiment 
where we pulled them out. And actually, the first two cubes we processed and we cut them apart and we were messing with the stuff on the inside because that's what we were focused on. And then somebody goes, hey, wait a minute, and started looking at the outside of the cubes. And they were like, there's four AMs on here. And we were like, what? And they were like, wow. yeah, look, they're right here. And so then we, the, the, the focus of the project completely shifted. And we were like, yeah, take that stuff that's in the middle, throw it in the preservative. We don't care about it. We need to get all of these things off the surface. Huh. And it's this one species that I've essentially since made my career on <laughs> called Sibisodoides woolastorphi. And I have probably the largest collection of them and in both like the living. So it's living geochemical records. I've started to micro CT scan them, which is really cool. So I can do three-dimensional reconstructions, and then I can print those out as STL files. Uh, I can print them out on a 3D printer. Wow. Yeah. And so then we're starting to do volumetric stuff. So we're really taking a deep dive in this one particular species to understand how it's getting onto the plastics and how it's growing and why. So the reason this all matters, like, I mean, it matters to me because it's cool and I just keep going and want to know, but Sibisodoides willistorfi is one of the most commonly used forams for geochemistry. And so it's what we go to from the Miocene to today to reconstruct ocean temperatures and bottom water food conditions. So it's really important for us in understanding climate patterns and rates of change in the ocean's climates from Miocene. So all of the most recent climatic events, the glacials and our glacials, up to humans, you know, existing and how quickly temperatures are changing since then. So it's an important species that is, if anybody knows a 4AM species that's a benthic 4AM that's in geology, it's probably that one. Huh. And now I've got, I've, I've looked at probably thousands. Uh, just on one experiment, that initial deployment of the sea cubes, we got over a thousand individuals that we pulled off. And so that's normally in a sediment core in one interval when we slice it, because we're looking at it in depth from the surface down into deeper. Um, and in one slice, we'll get like five. Oh, so the, wow. Yeah. So a thousand. So a thousand is like, holy crap. It's uh yeah. It's the equivalent of like trying to do a study on campus and taking like one small graduate level course that is like eight people and trying to figure out information from them from that one course to doing like a campus wide survey. And so now I have the campus wide survey of the Sibisodoides willistorfi and I'm really just pulling out tons of information. And because it's such an important species, everybody's interested in it. But I still get a little bit of flack from my colleagues for, like, only ever doing one species. Here they are learning those 5,000 living species. And I'm like, ah, I just need the Wollastorphy. <laughs> so, yeah. But it sounds like something that small has a really big, like, reason for studying it. And that's crazy that something yeah. that small is right. that important for learning past climate change and stuff yeah. like that. So yeah, do you definitely. use that to, like, predict, help predict climate change? Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can look at the forams and how they're behaving in different events. Like, for instance, the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, which was 55 million years ago, is what we use as an analog or a comparison to current climate trends. So if you've heard about, you know, the hockey stick curve and looking at the rate of global temperature increase and all of that stuff, and all of those discussions about climate change, they're using data that we can measure from human observation, ice cores, we're trying to extend the record back farther and farther. And one of the ways we can look at global temperatures back prior to 
humans being like, what was the atmospheric temperature at the time? Our foramps, because the oceans are, you know, over 70% of our planet. So they're going to be preserving what's going on on a global scale. And so we can use the chemistry of the forams because they make a calcium carbonate shell and they're pulling that those materials out of the water column and building that, that calcium carbonate shell. Calcium carbonate is just like, a, it's a hard material. It's just like a seashell. So they're making the same kind of material as like a seashell you find on the beach <laughs> or in a stream or whatever. It's this white material that if you drop vinegar on it, it will fizz. Oh, okay. Uh, actually, eggshells are also calcium carbonate. Oh. So yeah, it's that same sort of material, but they can make it thicker or thinner. But when they pull that stuff out of the water column, they're incorporating everything that's in the water also. And so if the chemistry of the ocean changes because it's warming or cooling, or if nutrients are increasing or decreasing, they're preserving that in their shell in the geochemistry. And so that's what we use to, as a proxy for temperature. So we know, hey, when temperature increases, this number in the delta O18, we call it, so it's a ratio between oxygen 16 and oxygen 18, that changes whether it's warm or cold. And so we just zap it with a, we dissolve it and then put it through a device that can measure the oxygen 16 and oxygen 18 ratios and put it in there as a number. And then we get that and we plot it up on a graph and we can see how it changes through time. So they're just like microscopic time capsules of data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Microscopic time capsules. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. I'm going to steal that. (laughs) <laughs> Just plug the the Luke at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I'm I'm curious. Just hearing you talk, you have a lot of terms that I don't know what they mean, and and it's fascinating because you are obviously very, very smart and very brilliant just hearing you talk about these things. So how do you do? You just use your excitement to get students to study or do they have an interest already or right, how does we're that... in Oklahoma sure yeah, <laughs> yeah we are yeah. not near the ocean right. how does how does how do you get yeah. students interested in in studying the ocean right it's not a new challenge for me everywhere I've been I've been landlocked and studied the oceans but it's easy I mean a plane ticket is a plane ticket and even if you live on you know a beach environment you're not necessarily only going to study your beach right you're gonna want to get out there on a ship. And so I meet people from all over the world going to particular locations to study certain things. Mm-hmm. I do. I guess I use my you know charisma to get students interested, but they are also interested in like this whole different world and this idea that like, wow, look at this. It's so different. And a lot of students I will put on a microscope and the, it'll be the first time they use a microscope. They're like, oh my God, what is that? What is this? Is that just a sand grain? Like, yes. And like, I've never looked at this under a microscope. It's so beautiful. And you're like, it is. It's absolutely gorgeous. And there's so many cool things. But it, it really is like jumping into a different world. But you're going through a microscope into tiny things versus, you know, out to space. And, and I think a lot of the microscope work that students are able to do is more biology-oriented and even smaller, like bacteria and stuff like that which doesn't preserve and and it's fluid and gelatinous and sometimes the solid nature of the stuff we're looking at the consistency that you can save it and keep it and refer to it and and look at it over and over I don't, to me when things kind of can be amorphous I have a harder time wrapping my brain around what it looks like in different ways but mm-hmm. if it's like a solid thing that I can rotate and cut and look at differently I get a little more better understanding of it I guess 
but it depends on what the student is interested in. I do have a lot of students that want to do sort of environmental monitoring sort of stuff, and so I will put them on a different project that I have out in the Puget Sound where we're using 4AMs to understand the pollution sources that mm. are going into that area. I was going to ask you also about the dinosaur class that yeah. you teach. I've, we, we've heard that it's a really, really great class. Can you kind of tell us about it? And, sure. And I know that you teach it. You have pretty unique curriculum. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us about that? <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's a class that I call the story of dinosaurs. And I originally thought about it as a tool to help students understand the scientific process and how science evolves. Because the one awesome thing about science that is sometimes misconstrued in the general public is that it's static and that it's unchanging. That like we find something and we say, here's how it is, and that's it. We publish it and, and boom, there it is. But then as we all learned during the pandemic, everything changes, right? As you yeah. add more information, recommendations change and our understanding of things change. And some of us were wiping down groceries and then studies came out saying like, you don't have to do that. It doesn't live well on surfaces. And then, then you don't have to wipe it down anymore, but some people kept doing it, you know? And so there was a lot of back and forth. I developed this class before the pandemic, but the very first time I taught it was during the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so it really has kind of geared how I offer it and how I do things in the class. Mm -hmm. So I teach it in person and I teach a shorter version online in the summers. So it's a 16 week in person. And what we do is we go through different aspects of dinosaurs. First, like figuring out what they are and how we find them. And so I get to introduce topics about how things are fossilized and the nature of our fossil record, which is really incomplete. But from it, we do a lot of you know, hand waving at like, well, it was probably this. And, but we talk a lot about comparing things with modern organisms and what we can learn from things that are still alive today and what that means for organisms in the past. Hmm. And then we talk a lot about, well, here's our sparse fossil record, but what can we pull out of this? It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. Hmm. Everything in science is like that. It's never going to be perfect. We cannot design the perfect experiment that answers all the questions the fossil record's the same way, but what can we gain from it? Because there's still really valuable stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And then um, we talk about a whole bunch of different stuff, and I usually line groups up when we do our group work. So I have the students going through, you know, articles or given certain materials to, with a goal of building a certain thing. Um, and I'll have them kind of pitted against each other without them realizing it. And so they're like in their idea and they're really comfortable with it and confident. And then they get presented like essentially the opposite side of the argument with the, sa with the same thing, like dinosaur parenting. right? <laughs> and so then they have to figure out like, OK, how do we synthesize those ideas together while still making sure that they're correct? Promoting science literacy skills is what the course is designed to do, but with dinosaurs, which everybody loves. Yeah. So for this week, we're going to be watching the Jurassic Park movie and critiquing the accuracy of it and talking about the interplay between how Hollywood portrays some of these things. And that's how the general public consumes a lot of these things if they are not science experts. And so there are cost benefits to Hollywood's dinosaurs like it's really cool and entertaining and even five-year-old kids who get to see the movies are going to be able to like tell you about these dinosaurs and be engaging and learn about it. And that gets a lot of interest, which increases funding for scientists, but it also promotes whatever version of the dinosaurs that Hollywood is pushing. And so you get misconceptions that get incorporated into the general population 
And then the experts are walking around like, well, actually, it wasn't <laughs> that tall, and it didn't have those kind of teeth. And um, But with dinosaurs in particular, pop culture has really tried to keep Hollywood and, and media, like, honest. There's enough people on the internet that get really mad about like T-Rex having or not having feathers um, that there's like this general argument about it that that I think that they have to hold true to that. But it's not the case with all sciences. You know, like uh, the movie Interstellar, for instance, there's a lot of discussion that's been going on about like, well, is that even accurate? And then people will just throw their hands up and say, well, it's Hollywood interpretation. But, you know, astrophysicists can come in and be like, oh, actually, this part of it is actually pretty cool and pretty relevant. And it's an huh. interesting way to, like, connect with people and, and get the topic out there. Yeah, I can imagine that the offer of watching Jurassic Park in a college class right, makes yes. it that much more appealing, even beyond just studying dinosaurs. Right. And yeah, and part of what I like about the class, too, is I don't study dinosaurs, so I don't know all the answers. But that's a benefit. I say that to the students at the beginning, like, hey... What I'm good at is the science interpretation, and I understand how scientists communicate with each other and where we can find the information and and how we can get the answers. But it's not my specialty. I'm not studying it. I can't tell you, you know, what Pachycephalosaurus' thick dome skull was for. I could tell you how to say the Pachycephalosaurus word, but, you know, um, but the students really jump into the creativity aspect of it, and they come up with some really solid-based scientific ideas that could be true but haven't been investigated yet. Which wow. I, And every semester it happens. And I'm always amazed because that's the kind of perspective that I think we really need in science. It, it should not be, well, this is how we've always done it and this is how we're going to continue to do it. But thinking about things in a more creative way and adding to that bigger picture, filling in those gaps, synthesizing all that information together, like that's the part of science that's exciting. And anybody can do that. Any student can do that part. You don't have to, like, even know the scientific method. But if you have a creative idea and you can plug it into the scientific method, you can be a scientist. You don't have to be a genius mathematical calculating machine. You just have to have creative thought and find a way to document it and plug it into the already existing scientific method. I get a lot of students who are in business and art and theater and and things that are Nowhere near the scope of, of science. I get a lot of political scientists, too, for some reason. But, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, but they all, they all can do it. I think it's an empowering class where they can be in control and explore the material. And then, and then it's totally accessible. I watched an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He said something just like that. With, yeah? Yeah, and Ted Lasso. Yeah. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> Ted is, you know, an Ameri- well, American sweetheart, right? It's, uh, he's... But be curious and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, be curious, not judgmental. That's his line, right? Yeah. 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 That creativity, I think, is there is this perception that if you're in the sciences, you are data-driven, you are, that's at least from someone not in the sciences, that's me, that's how I perceive math and science is you've got to have this type of brain, and I don't have that. But then talking to you, obviously you need the creativity, you need the, the more maybe quote-unquote artsy side of things oh, at least you're in your you know to think about things so that you can investigate in new ways mm-hmm. so, I love that. right and I think it's the intersection between all the different disciplines that the most exciting finds come from when you're siloed in your own discipline and you're just proceeding on you know the normal route I think yeah you find really cool stuff but to me, the most exciting stuff is when, like, arts and sciences collide or, you know, even 
totally different disciplines collide and you're like, oh, well, this guy's doing biomechanics and this one's doing something totally different, like paleontology of T-Rex. Like, okay, well, maybe the biomechanics of the T-Rex leg can help us create a new apparatus for people that need it. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, T-Rex like sweet. Yeah. (laughs) Or what if T-Rex had prosthetic arms? Like, (laughs) you know, that's a creative story. (laughs) Like a good choice in choosing your prosthetic, regular leg or T-Rex leg. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I would I would also love to teach like an art paleo class. Yeah. Because in paleontology, we think about morphology a lot and how things look. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my experience... When students take paleontology with me, at least, they don't have necessarily the most refined artistic skills when they start, but by the time they finish, they've developed these three-dimensional thinking skills, and they start changing the way that they've made these sketches of the organisms they're looking at. But even through time, you could tie art in through time, because if you're trying to create a sketch of a dinosaur and put it into a setting, right, you have to know what plants were around at that time period, what tiny mammals should I put like scurrying around the feet. Mm -hmm. And so I can teach the history of life through creating an artistic reconstruction. The intersections between, especially arts and sciences, are just awesome. Yeah. How do you present your research? And do you find that people are interested or do you have to get them interested? How does how does that look? Well, I do a lot of really charismatic stuff. So like with the Alvin, it's pretty easy to be like, oh yeah, I go in a submarine and I go down to the bottom of the ocean. And they're like, that's amazing. Uh-huh. When do you use the bathroom? <laughs> so it's exactly. like, that's easy. Uh, and with the dinosaur stuff, it's easy to kind of throw out these big charismatic things. But it's a, sometimes a little bit harder to get people interested in micropaleontology or sitting at a microscope and doing something that's really labor intensive. And so you just have to, for me, how I do that is by putting it into the context of why you should care and always trying to plug it back into why this small little task that I'm doing matters for my students. Or if I'm in, you know, having conversation with people who you know, aren't in school and why they should care, why I should get the funding that I do, it's tying it back into your daily life relevance and whether that's in oil and gas exploration or if it's in ocean conservation, preservation, or climate research. I always try to tie it back. And the wonderful thing I think about my research is I can be really interdisciplinary. I can go into all of those things I just stated. I can get really specific. I can get really broad. But it's always tying it back into why it matters. And for different people, it might matter for different reasons. That's it for our show. Thanks to Dr. Burkett for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Pokes podcast and follow the College of Arts and Sciences on social media.